0: Welcome to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. You can find me right here on YouTube. I'm filling in tonight and I'm excited to be speaking with uh, Kyle Bigby. He is the National Campaigns Manager for Common Defense and a United States Marine Corps veteran. He is also one of the co-founders of the Black Veterans Project. Kyle, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, thank you for having me, Ben.
0: Pleasure is ours. Um, before we get into some of the substance of, this, of, of your work um, and some of the depth of this, the, the interview that I want to go through with you, could you just tell us real quick about Common Defense uh, and what you do there?
1: Sure. So uh, I'm the National Campaigns Manager of Common Defense. Uh, We are a progressive veterans organization, so we are training veterans across the country to become uh, organizers themselves uh, across a myriad of issues. But our primary campaigns that we focus on are ending the wars, uh, demilitarizing the police and getting Donald Trump out of office. And Uh, We're currently across the country uh, activated right now for this election. Uh, I'm in North Carolina myself um, and meeting with veterans every single day, talking about the working class issues that that really affect them and the people across this country so much.
0: You're also co-founder of the Black Veterans Project. Tell us about that organization and what you do with them.
1: Indeed, yeah. So uh, the Black Veterans Project was, uh, or it is a project that was started uh, a couple years ago with uh, a friend of mine from grad school, Richard Brookshire. He's an Army medic. Um, We wanted to secure the legacy of Black service members in the military uh, and and essentially just, you know, retake that story and, and have ownership over it, create an archive to uh, track and maintain the history of black service members across the history of the US intergenerationally, but also use that as a a tool to uh, further racial justice within the military and the Department of Veterans Affairs. So from what we've seen through a number of different reports, whether they be from DOD, VA, or civilian groups, uh, a lot of the racial justice inequities that we see in the criminal justice system, they're mirrored in the military justice system. And the um, inequities that we see within health care, housing, other things like that, uh, it also bears out within uh, the VA in terms of how veterans are received uh, through the rest of society. So we want to bring more attention to those issues.
0: And you do some organizing outside of that, uh, and it seems like as I listened to you and I read up about your background, you have a, uh, a deep interest in organizing um, in general, organizing veterans specifically, but even more precisely, progressive veterans. Could you talk about this this idea that's kind of pervasive in this country that veterans um, usually lean towards the Republican Party or towards conservatism, but it seems like you found the opposite and you found enough to organize a progressive uh, veterans group.
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh, so what, what we found is that um, and, and I mean, you know, my team and I and our, our organizers and, and volunteers, we're talking to veterans across the country all the time. And what we found is that a lot of these progressive policies and progressive solutions to the problems that we're seeing in this country um they, they are really very popular with the military. And this really shouldn't be surprised. surprise. Uh, military members are overwhelmingly um, unhappy with the status quo. They're embarrassed and angry about 20 years of war. They think that th- those resources would be better used uh, in our communities at home, um, you know whether that be healthcare, education, infrastructure. Uh, veterans are overwhelmingly working class. So they focus um, a lot on issues having to do with wages and workers' rights. So when we have these conversations, we're finding that, you know, although uh, Mm. centrists and particularly the Republican Party as well, you know, they they want to, um, you know, use veterans as a prop. They want to speak for us. Uh, Veterans are more than willing to speak for themselves. And we want to create uh, an organization that can uplift their stories and their personal narratives and and really take back, um, you know, the ability to uh, speak for ourselves on these issues.
0: So you get political, right? You're, it sounds like you get in the weeds. Uh, probably some campaigns that you're um, working around to do this organizing. Tell me about some of the the politics involved in this, because the organizing is an important aspect. But it sounds like you also are going to have to get your hands dirty with some like real intense uh, politicking.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so we, we've uh, so first in terms of our organizing training, we have what's called the Veterans Organizing Institute, and that's a a several-day training institute where we bring in a group of veterans, a cohort, and we train them to be basic organizers. And from there, they can, you know, join our campaigns of ending the wars and demilitarizing the police or things like that, or they can do their own organizing work. We have a number who go on to do uh, environmental work and such. Uh, But we also focus pretty heavily on electoral organizing and lobbying. Uh, One of our biggest successes uh, over the past few years has been what we call our End the Forever War Pledge, uh, the first person to sign it was Bernie Sanders, uh, soon after Ilhan Omar, uh, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, um, and, and that's that's our general constituency of candidates. But as time has gone on and, and we've really been able to grow this movement, we found that, um, you know, we're, we're providing more voice to a movement that's been silent for a while, veterans that want these wars to end. And now we're seeing a lot more of uh, Democrats who might not necessarily identify as progressive, who are also speaking out a bit more on on ending these wars, up until uh, recently when the Democratic Party actually included ending the forever war in their platform at the DNC this year. So we've we've been pretty successful in growing this movement, and uh, we've been doing that through good old-fashioned lobbying, good old-fashioned organizing, and from time to time, uh, you know, asking the tough questions of some of the Elected officials that either try to avoid us or are just downright wrong on these issues. Right, right. Speaking about
0: being downright wrong on the issues, there's a Senate race coming up uh, in your state. Uh, Tom Tillis, uh, tell me about um, your thoughts on that race and any anything that you're doing with regard to uh, organizing around it.
1: Yeah, so uh, to understand what's going on in North Carolina, uh, you got to understand the battleground of the state, really. Um, so there's about 750,000 military veterans in North Carolina, which is about eight percent of the state. So we're talking about a very real constituency here, and that doesn't include the people who are still active duty on bases like Camp Lejeune, Fort Bragg, Cherry Point, Pope Air Force Base. There's a number of large installations with thousands and thousands more. So um, you know, we we want to be able to talk to that constituency, and we also understand the power that that constituency has on issues like ending the wars, national security, and demilitarizing the police—all very important issues in this election. So we've been organizing veterans uh, really to challenge Senator Tillis on the fact that not only has he, um, you know, routinely been wrong on uh, ending the wars, but you know, uh, one one of the big things that we've challenged him on is the fact that he took funding from a lot of. Uh, base programs, including schools on, I believe, Fort Bragg and and barracks at uh, Camp Lejeune, which were in in very bad conditions, so they could uh, devote that toward Donald Trump's wall, you know? So, I mean, these these little political ploys that ultimately are not serving military families, that aren't serving these communities, um, you know, so we want to be able to organize veterans around that and challenge the people in power who have not been supporting us and and these working class uh, veteran communities.
0: So you represent a lot of intersections that I think are critical for the future of progressives, um, electoral politics, uh, progressive organizing. You represent uh, the intersection of of blackness, um, of being a veteran, and being a progressive. Um, tell us your thoughts on how we move a progressive agenda forward in the future, and what are some of the mistakes that we can learn from that you've observed the, over since 2016 and 2020?
1: Uh, You know, I can tell you a, a bit of my personal story, um, being, I was an infantry officer, I've deployed to Afghanistan and, you know, um, I've seen really the futility of, of what's been going on overseas, um, firsthand and the sort of waste that we've seen, um, from, from, uh, these wars and, um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, one thing that the Democrats and and progressives in particular need to be more willing to do is to actively stand up and fight on this issue. And, and you know, we understand as common def- at Common Defense that oftentimes the best protagonists for trying to end these wars are people who served in the war. But, mm-hmm. you know, it can't just be us. And, and we need to be able to uh, unite with other progressives who oftentimes, if I'm being honest, are, are suspicious of people who served in the military. They believe this lie that everyone in the military is a conservative, so they look right past this constituency. And you look at a state like North Carolina, again, 8% of the state that, you know, we're talking a state that could be swung by one or two percentage points. Um, and that went for Obama in 2008, uh, if we can engage this constituency better. And if we can actually start fighting and going on the offensive on ending these wars, rather than essentially trying to be Republican light, we can make real progress uh, in in the progressive movement.
0: So the goal for you, or rather one of the things that you see that we could do is actually move towards progressive policies, reach out to veterans, and leverage their voices in a way that will help push back against these endless wars.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we can't be afraid to say it's time to end the wars. You know, we see, uh, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, they, they don't dig their heels in on this. I think there's there's from some Democrats, um, you know, the belief that they can just be Republican light, a little less war. Or maybe maybe if we just do war a little bit softer. No, you know, this it, it's been 20 years now and, and it has not served our country. It's made us less safe. And uh, it's up to us to, uh, you know, uh, to end it. To end
0: it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Kyle, it, it was actually a really a pleasure speaking with you and hearing the work that you're doing organizing. Um, tell everyone how they can reach you and what, com- what you
1: have coming up next. Absolutely. So um, if you are a veteran and you're interested in getting involved, uh, you can go to our website and, and join up uh, at commondefense.us join. Uh, if you're not a veteran and you want to support us, uh, you know we are a grassroots organization, so there's a lot of you know bubblegum shoestrings and duct tape. So you can make a donation to help us uh, make things happen um, at the same website, commondefense.us, um, and we are actually currently in the planning process of setting up what we call a QRF. That's a quick reaction force, a term from the military. That is. Um, Really to be on standby after the election, just in case um, if the Republicans, Donald Trump, they decide that they want to try something to steal this election or challenge, you know, uh, challenge the vote um, or try to take it to the courts against the will of the people. We want to have veterans across the country willing to stand up and say, this is not what we serve for. This is not what we fought for. And we simply will not accept it and, you know, get out into the streets and exercise our First Amendment right.
0: Absolutely. Kyle Bibby, National Campaigns Manager of Common Defense, United States Marine Corps veteran and also the co-founder of the Black Veterans Project. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Ben.
0: Welcome back to The Conversation. My name again is Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. I'm now joined by Professor Carlton Larson. He is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis, and author of the new release, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Professor Larson, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: The pleasure is ours. You're a professor and a scholar of American constitutional law, and your new book just came out in September, dealing with the precise definition of treason and uh, the history of it um, and the fact that a lot of people throwing around the term really are not using it correctly. Could you just kind of give us an overview of your book and how it's applicable to the conversations that we're having in our political spaces right now?
2: Sure, I wrote the book um, uh, once uh, Donald Trump uh, was elected president and we started I started getting lots and lots of phone calls uh, from the media uh, asking whether or not he had committed treason mm-hmm. uh, and I've been studying this subject for a long time no one ever made that call about Barack Obama or George W. Bush um, but it started coming up all the time and Uh, Trump sort of returned the favor by accusing everybody around uh, that he disliked uh, of committing treason. And so uh, I realized that there was a lot of misunderstanding uh, about this term uh, and that it might be useful to have a book that would just sort of explain very clearly um, for non-lawyers what what treason is and what it isn't, and then uh, to sort of illustrate that with various stories about interesting treason cases throughout American history.
0: Uh, So, I mean... I have to ask this question. Can you define, without giving us the way, the, uh, the the secret sauce of your book, tell us what treason is, and if you don't mind, giving us um, kind of a little insight, a little preview of one of the stories that best illustrates how we can understand treason.
2: Sure. Um, so treason is, is sort of somewhat unique in the United States because it's actually defined in our Constitution, uh, and it's limited to levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies. Uh, giving them aid and comfort. Um, And so those are two pretty narrow definitions. And that means that most types of sort of ordinary betrayal um, are not going to count as treason. It's got to be pretty significant. Generally, the answer to the question is, is it treason? Is probably not. Uh, You know, it's got to be something pretty, uh, you know, up there uh, in terms of um, being able to fit the constitutional definition. I guess one Uh, story um, from the book uh, that that one could relate is essentially the story of Jefferson Davis, um, who was the president of the Confederacy. Um, And this is one of the cases where there clearly was treason, uh, living war against the United States. I mean, that's exactly what the Confederate States of America did. uh, And Jefferson, as the head of the Confederate States, uh, was clearly liable for that charge. And he was indicted after the Civil War. Uh, by a federal grand jury, by the first racially mixed grand jury in uh, American history. Uh, but ultimately the case fell apart, uh, mm. and the Andrew Johnson administration didn't pursue it. Um, in part, I think they thought there were there were some uh, problems getting a, a Virginia jury to convict, uh, but also a sense that the Civil War was now over, um, and that hanging Jefferson Davis would create a, a, a martyr around which people could rally for generations. Mm. Uh, and they didn't want to do that. Um, so even some cases as extreme as Jefferson Davis uh, ultimately is not convicted or, or executed. Mm.
0: So in history, how many people have been indicted for treason? slash, And then it sounds like no one has been ever found guilty of treason.
2: Well, there have been a handful of people found guilty since the U.S. Constitution um, was adopted. But so far as I can determine, only one person has been actually executed. Um, And that case was a serious miscarriage of justice that occurred during the uh, Mexican-American War uh, when military officials rushed into New Mexico, um, claimed that New Mexico was now part of the United States, and tried a Mexican man for treason and executed him, Mm -hmm. um, even though he had never set foot in the United States. He had no allegiance to the United States. He didn't speak English. His trial was conducted uh, in a language he didn't understand. Um, And he's the only person who has actually been executed for this crime. There were a handful during the revolution uh, before the Constitution was adopted, but since the Constitution, he's the only one.
0: How has this affected the conversation in a way that that drove you to write the book, right? So if you see everyone using it out of context, um, using it, trying to just kind of just slander each other or mudslinging. What what really stood out to you that said, this needs to be addressed so people can understand? Do you feel like using it too much has watered down the meaning, or it's just become... W- what's the driving force behind writing the book to make this clarification?
2: Well, I think you know, one of the problems is it's become so pervasive now, um, and it's particularly, I think, attributable partly to Trump's rhetoric, that People take the President of the United States seriously. Uh, when the President of the United States says someone is a traitor or committed treason, I mean, that used to be yeah. one of the most significant utterances a President could possibly make. Uh, and now it's just sort of tossed around like you know, it's not even news when, when Trump says it. Uh, but this really poisons our political rhetoric. It makes us think that people on the other side of the political divide are not just people with whom we disagree, but they're un-American, that they're criminals, that they're people who ought to die, they ought to be executed um, mm-hmm. for, for what they've done. And we just can't have a functioning democracy where we think that people on the other side are, are criminals because we, we disagree with them. And that's, um, you know, hopefully uh, if Donald Trump goes away, some, some of this rhetoric will go away, but he, he really has poisoned the well um, quite a bit on this.
0: So there's a, you see an escalation in the seriousness of the claims and the charges because it's coming from the office of the presidency. Do you see that that can be compounded any by him stacking the federal judiciary um, such with people who, in many cases, are loyal to him or loyal to this dogged, uh, conservative, rigid ideology? Do you see any way that these proclamations from Donald Trump can actually bear fruit, even if it's not the precise definition of treason?
2: Well, I, I don't, I'm not so worried that the federal government will actually prosecute people for treason improperly. Um, I think that you know the federal courts, the law in, in most of these cases is pretty clear. And Bill Barr has said, you know, that Trump is, you know, not accurate on the law when it comes to treason. Um, so that doesn't concern me so much. What concerns me more is that you know people, some people, you know, like these Michigan folks, they may decide to take the law into their own hand. Yes. And they thought, you know, Governor Whitmer was uh, a traitor. Um, Well, they may have thought that because Trump is tweeting things like Liberate Michigan and all kinds of other things. Um, So I think that's what the the real danger is.
0: Yeah. So it's not so much—okay, so not directly, but almost in a sense of stochastic terrorism, like these words, this language is the highest accusation that you can make. Having it come from the highest office, office in our land has reverberating effects that could cause people to take actions into their own hands.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, presidents used to be scrupulously careful um, with, their, with their rhetoric, um, mm. knowing that, that people hang on every word. Um, uh, that's sort of the opposite of, of the current president.
1: Let's,
0: let's flip it to the other side of the argument. A lot of accusations against Donald Trump about being treasonous, um, not to help him out any. <laughs> we don't want to do him any, <laughs> I don't want to do him any favors. But it seems like the accusations against him, therefore, must be coming up short as well.
2: Yeah, they are. And that's, that's sort of, when I first started talking with the media about this, it, unfortunately I was put in the position of defending Donald Trump on uh, treason charges, which I didn't particularly like. But, you know, that was the reality of, of the law, that nothing that Trump has done um, so far that, that we know, I mean, who knows what he's done in private, but what at least has been publicly revealed, nothing um, actually amounts to, um, to treason.
0: And in the book, do you like, give hypotheticals or do you show like this is the line? Where would be the line for Donald Trump to actually have committed treason short of waging war against the United States? What's the other part that he could actually do?
2: Yeah, so in the book, I give some examples. You know, one is, is you know, the betrayal of the Kurds uh, in, uh, in Syria, which um, helped our ISIS, which I think is an enemy uh, for purposes of the treason clause. And if you could show that Trump did that with the intent of aiding ISIS, Mm. Um, then that probably would be um, treason against the United States. Um, but I don't think that's why he did it. I think he did it because he just was tired of Middle Eastern wars and he just wanted to, to get out of there, and the benefit ISIS was sort of incidental.
1: Um, mm. And so,
2: and that, that's actually a lot of the, the, the cases here. Same thing with the Russian bounty issue. I mean, if he had known about that and encouraged it ahead of time, then it may well be treason because it aids the Taliban, uh, who are an enemy. Um, but again, it doesn't seem that that's Trump's, uh, actual mental intent, and that tends to be a key factor in a lot of these cases.
0: Mm. But it seems like he is treading in that territory, right, he, because of these acts that he's carrying out that have indirect benefits for our enemies. Um, real quick, do they have to be a clearly defined enemy that we're engaged in a war in for it to be treason?
2: Yeah, essentially it has to be a foreign nation, a group with whom we're in a state of open war. So it's pretty clear that, you know, we are we are firing shots at them you know that this is something where everybody is notice. You don't help these people, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And then that's that's the problem with with Russia. I mean, we're, we're just simply not in a state of war with Russia. I mean, if we were, uh, life would be very different uh, yeah. for for, for, our, for our country.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, professor Carlton Larson. He's a professor of law at the University of California, Davis, and author of the new book "On Treason: A Citizen's Guide to the Law." Uh, I think it's an important book, and everyone should check it out, especially because you never know Donald Trump might actually cross that line. Professor, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here.